Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, yesterday saw the highest spike in Ontario COVID-19 cases with over 1,000 reported. Should the government be making changes to help curb the spread? We'll talk about it. Blockades continue in Caledonia. Today marks 100 days of occupation at the Mackenzie Meadows construction site. We'll get the update as to what's happening up there. And is Hamilton Wentworth District School Board heading for a deficit? Sure looks like it. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, COVID-19 is once again the big story. The numbers here in Ontario continue to rise. Uh, the Premier, of course, will make his daily uh, update to us just after 1 o'clock this afternoon. And uh, when he does, he's expected to actually increase the number of uh, areas of the province that are going to go back to uh, some level of uh, phase two, which means some closing, either reduced hours or something else. We'll talk about that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, to give us an update on exactly what's happening o- uh, over the last little while here, though, w- especially with COVID-19 in Ontario, uh, with this high count that we're dealing with right now, I want to bring uh, Global News uh, Jordan Amines into the uh, situation here and give us the overview as to what's happened over the last 48 hours or so. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Isaac Bogosh says Sunday's record number of cases was to be expected. This could be a spike related to Thanksgiving. But with the speed of testing in the province and the subsequent results uncertain, Bogosh says we will know this week if those measures are working. Is this going to actually plateau or are we going to see a continued rise in cases? We'll know one way or another this upcoming week. He says it appears most Ontarians didn't listen to public health guidelines during the October holiday. Of course, there might not have been adherence to that and this could be a spike related to Thanksgiving. Jordan Armanis, Global News. Well, it, what is causing it is important, certainly, but the fact that it's happening, I think, is even more important. Let's uh, bring Dr. Todd Coleman into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Coleman is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Uh, thanks for having me again. Uh, are you surprised by the numbers? Uh, not uh, exceptionally, unfortunately. Uh, it, it seems to follow the trend that uh, it was predicted that uh, a couple weeks following Thanksgiving, we would see uh, likely see a spike. Uh, one of your uh, fellow researchers into this whole thing I was listening to over the weekend calls this an epidemic of complacency. Is that a pretty apt description? Yeah, I would say uh, we're we're likely seeing the what what's being referred to as the the COVID fatigue at this point, saying uh, not everybody's been affected, so I, I can make these concessions, and the concessions just start adding up until the cases start to uh, uh, multiply and and happen more frequently. Well, we're starting to see that. I know there's a big uh, controversy about a couple of the local officials here. Actually, one health minister, uh, the federal health minister, uh, was seen at Pearson Airport without a mask on. And we've seen a, a, a local MPP, again, with family, uh, a family get-together, a family reunion of some description anyway, indoors with no masks on. Uh, you know, the, the, those are the sorts of things that really have you scratching your head and wondering, aren't you people listening? Yeah, there, there's a little bit of, uh, as, with, as with most, most things that uh, are COVID-19 related and the messaging that seems to be going out, there seems to be some contradictions in uh, what people are saying you should do and what's actually happening, especially uh, uh, in terms of our uh, elected officials. There's another story that I I wanted to get your comment on. And again, I don't want to drive too deep into the politics of this, but uh, Donald Trump's White House chief of staff over the weekend, Mark Meadows, says that uh, they cannot control this virus. They're just going to wait for a vaccine, which sounds like a roundabout way of saying they're moving towards herd uh, immunity in a situation like this. But uh, that's a pretty dangerous road to go down if that were going to be a government policy, wouldn't it? Yeah, if if you're you're trying to to get at herd immunity, which requires a significant proportion uh, of people to have had been infected, uh, you're you're looking at an overwhelming uh, of the hospital system, and likely uh, even though they've had a lot of deaths so far, uh, just seeing this multiply uh, to astronomical proportions. Well, because obviously what they're doing there, they want everybody or as many people as possible that are going to get infected by this. Uh, but that's also going to increase the mortality or the death rate, isn't it? That's right. If, if you if you abandon all, uh, all uh, provisions to prevent uh, infection, uh, you're likely going to see the infections run rampant through uh, uh, long-term care homes, through uh, a bunch of the older populations, people with comorbid conditions. 
it it won't look it won't look good uh, uh, in terms of the mortality rate if they uh, take this strategy. I mean, the rationalization here as well, you know, you may get real sick and uh, some, you might even die, but it's for the greater good for the community. I, I just don't see, I can't see how anybody in their right mind could actually say this is a, a good policy. Yet it was, and it's not just being floated here. I mean, other quote-unquote experts uh, that are uh, trying to decide what we're going to do next here are suggesting that might be it. But uh, I, I, I'm just hoping that this saner heads are going to prevail in a situation like this because uh, we're learning so much about this virus over the last little while because of the work like, like yourself and others are doing in a situation like this uh, but we also know that what we need to do and it, that's that seems to be the major problem here doctor we're not listening to what you and others are telling us to do that's exactly it uh, uh, we know how to prevent uh, infections uh, we know how to prevent these eventual deaths uh, and the strategies that are being employed uh, so far uh, by a number of different administrations a number of different organizations seem to be piecemeal so focusing on on one thing over the other rather than thinking of this through the progression of the entire thing. The additional thing with uh, herd immunity to consider as well is that if we try to employ a strategy such as that, uh, we, we still, uh, as we've talked about before, we don't know the long-term ramifications of the illness. So on top of the death, uh, the long-term repercussions of this virus and infection with the virus are, are not fully known. And we could be looking at a number of, of uh, uh, burdens on the healthcare system, not just for the immediate future, but for years to come. And, and, that, and those are the things that concern me. I mean, because I know that, uh, you know, the deniers, and there are still some deniers out there, are simply going to say, well, it's no worse than the flu. I'm still hearing that from some people, mm -hmm. some of the emails. And I'll get some like just like that after you and I finish our conversation this morning, Doctor. But uh, we don't know exactly. Your point is well taken. The long-term effects this, this could have. I mean, we've got, uh, what do they call them, the long haulers, people that actually carry the symptoms on for seven, eight, sometimes nine months. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are some, you know, documented cases of that going on right now so it's not it's something that you can't just be you know dismissed and say well that's not really going to happen we don't know yet and we need to take precautions and you've and others in, in this field have told us what those precautions are uh, the other element to this too uh, where the fear mongers come in is well you know we're going to shut the economy down again uh, just as uh, many people did back in the in the early part of this year when this was happening uh, is that an effective way? Because we've seen other jurisdictions like Hong Kong and uh, and other places that have basically done just that. I mean, the, the, the shutting everything down for a period of time. I remember Dr. Redfield then on the States. Uh, I think you and I talked about this previously, this couple of months ago, back in the summer when he was before a congressional committee, said if everybody wore masks for about six weeks or seven weeks, it's not, it wouldn't go away, but the numbers would be decreased so significantly we could get on with our lives. It, it sounds pretty simple. Is, it, is that too simplistic an, an approach to take here or is it the most effective way yeah it definitely it is it is a, an effective way um in terms of shutting down the economy itself that that's typically uh and, and should be looked at as a, a last resort uh the economy and, and people's livelihoods uh similar to any infection uh are, are they manifest in people's health and, and well-being as well so making money uh, determines whether or not you get sick with something for the most part. Uh, so that should be really thought of as a last resort. But the problem is, is what you mentioned earlier, is that the the, the piecemeal strategies that are being thrown out there uh, by, by different governments uh, don't get at the root of this. So masks are, are, are not 100% effective, but quite effective. Uh, in in reducing this, as is social distancing, uh, physical distancing, uh, uh, and hand washing uh, to a lesser extent, but these are are just simple, effective strategies. And and it, it at this point it, it confuses me as to why we wouldn't employ these strategies or or think of them as beneficial just to help the situation out uh, uh, as we're trying to deal with this. Uh, I'm thinking of another comment from from Dr. Redfield from uh, a couple of months ago, too, where you remember when he held the mask up, and he says th holding this and watching this and wearing this is probably more effective to, it, to keep me healthy than even the vaccine would be. A pretty bold statement to make, but I think it indicates just how important the mask wearing really is. Yeah, it, it, it's, 
uh, there's varying levels of, of studies that have shown the effectiveness, but it is effective uh, more than anything that we have now in terms of a tool. So in terms of using it, we should go ahead and, and, and really employ and really uh, uh, just wear a mask as, as often as you can when you're in public. And I know, again, I'm just running a bunch of things by you that I'm hearing all the time and getting response to. Uh, you know, and, and this is one of Donald Trump's favorite things. Is, well, they told us at first not to wear masks. Now they're saying to do it. So what are you supposed to believe? Uh, but, I mean, they, you know, they used to treat fevers by putting leeches on you, too. And I think we've learned a lot, and we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And this, that, that same learning process is really why this is evolving to, okay, you don't need to do that. But now you do need to do that to, to try to control this. Yeah, and a lot of the the discussion about the masks were uh, not wearing masks on a wide scale was largely due to worries of shortages that would happen for healthcare workers and frontline workers who actually are exposed to the virus much more frequently than just uh, your average person. Uh, but at this point, uh, face coverings are, are are you can make them at home, you can buy them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, why not use them when while we have them? Yeah, it's become an industry now. Just about every place you go to now, they're selling masks of, of some description, even just the, the, the basic blue ones that everybody seems to wear uh, that are disposable to the other things as well. But uh, again, it, it, I think it goes to the idea of exactly what we need to do here. When you see numbers like this, though, Doctor, uh, and the, it's been about a week and a half now, and I, I think you heard our clip uh, from earlier from our global news department, that uh, that probably this is related to Thanksgiving. We're getting to do, be just around that time in the uh, in the incubation period, aren't we? Where if, if people were misbehaving, and they probably were. I mean, I've heard so many stories about it. That's where these numbers are going to start to show. That's right. Usually, uh, we see uh, as little as two days, as much as fourteen days. So that we're fitting right in the window quite perfectly at this point to see those increased cases. That something happened over that long weekend that is likely leading to uh, this increase in cases. So where do we go from here? I mean, you know, we knew there was going to be a second wave. Uh, you know, it seems, uh, even though I guess it varies from, you know, from area to area, but we are in a second wave right now. That seems to be pretty evident from what our experts are telling us mm-hmm. here in Ontario anyway. Uh, do we have to go through the same wave as we did through uh, through the springtime, or is there a way that we can actually do something about this to mitigate this? I mean, because I keep hearing darker days are ahead, and, you know, we haven't even seen the worst of this yet. That's, those are pretty ominous warnings. Yeah, the issue with it is, is are we are we willing, or is the, the our elected officials and our government willing to let this go uh, on the trajectory that it's on? So I, I'm expecting to see more... Uh, moves back to stage two for a number of regions uh but i think what what we're largely seeing here uh it needs to be controlled somehow uh because at some point uh again the hospitalizations and the deaths uh similar to what we we talked about with getting together at thanksgiving and the number of new cases it's our what they what they call what we call lagging indicators so in a few weeks from now, with this high number of active cases and the high number of new cases happening, we're going to see increases in hospitalizations and deaths uh, as a result if it starts working its way through those vulnerable populations. I'm glad you brought that up. I did want to ask you about that, uh, about the impact this is having on hospitalizations. Uh, that seemed to be a, a, a headline story back in the springtime, you know, that we're at overcapacity and we're worried about that. The numbers I'm seeing, doctors, suggest we're, we're almost at that point again, yet we're not hearing a whole lot of discussion about it. Yeah, we're not we're not hearing much about it. I, I'm very surprised about not hearing about it uh, uh, sooner, but that's exactly, um, uh, uh, we're in the same situation that we, we saw before. Uh, and I, I really am, am sincerely hoping that our hospitals are ready for potential surges. Well, and we've heard discussions about number of beds available, and uh, I guess one of the other more daunting statistics I saw is uh, almost one in five people that are infected now are, are healthcare workers in some degree, which I guess maybe is not that surprising since they're on the front line, but it's, it's, it's frightening to, to think that the numbers are, are that high. Yeah, and and it, it does worry me because uh, because of what we know about COVID nineteen uh, and the ability to uh, cause mortality or long term uh, uh, disability. 
this means that we're chipping away at the people who are able to do the work and to prevent us from or treat us and, and prevent further illness. Uh, got a couple of seconds left here. I just wanted to get an update, if I could, Doctor, because a lot of folks are holding up. I think we all probably are about the vaccine. When's it going to come? We heard some stories a week or two ago that a couple of the major trials actually had to hit the pause button because they were concerned about some of the, the side effects. What are you hearing about that? Are they back on track right now, the the Oxford trial vaccine and, and others like that? Are we still looking at something around mid-year next year that uh, that we might all be able to, to be uh, vaccinated? Uh, the things that I've heard so far, I, I think both trials that had uh, been shut down are now back on. Um, and that, that does leave us on track for a potential uh, a vaccine and the results to show whether the vaccine is effective uh, in widespread use uh, sometime in 2021. Uh, so I, I'm, we're still holding out hope, but then th- there's that whole added component of that where we need to think about the logistics about who gets the vaccine and when uh, and who gets prioritized because they can't immediately for all 38 million Canadians create a vaccine uh, that can be immediately uh, uh, given. Well, we've got a long way to go before we get there. And in the meantime, I guess the message here is wear the mask and get back to the social distancing. Uh, always, right. a, always a pleasure, doctor, to get you up here to give us an update and to, and to clarify some of the things that we see on a daily basis here as we try to battle this virus. Thanks again for your help. We'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks again. Have a good week. You too. Dr. Todd Coleman, of course, from Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The blockades continue in Caledonia. Yesterday, a standoff ensued between some residents and members of the Six Nations of the Grand River. Uh, we've talked about this extensively, of course, over the last couple of days. Late last week, we had uh, Aaron Detler, a Haudenosaunee lawyer, uh, who we talked to extensively during the Douglas Creek incident a number of years ago. And uh, there was a sense of deja vu all over again. But it is based totally on what we've been talking about for, I guess, 236 years now. Uh, which is the uh, anniversary of the Haldeman Tract. This is the territory encompassing 10 kilometers along the full length of the Grand River that was given to the Haudenosaunee by the British in gratitude for their help during the American Revolution. That's the background. That's the backdrop for this. And that's also the uh, the foundation for the controversy and the conflict that's going on right now that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Morgan Campbell is a digital video journalist with Global News and joining us on the Bill Keller Show uh, to give us an update on what's going on. Morgan, thanks uh, for the time on a very busy weekend. Glad you could join us today. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. What did you see? What did you hear what, uh, as you talked to some of the folks up there and, and witnessed some of the, the, the confrontation? Yeah, you know... Um... There really was a community divide, and I think that um, it really is unlike anything um, anyone really would have expected. Um, you have uh, members of, of Six Nations who are are concerned about about the land. Let's not forget today marks a hundred days since they've been occupying that parcel mm-hmm. of land. Um, so this didn't just flare up overnight. And, and I think a lot of people uh, don't necessarily understand that portion. Community members are upset that the road's blocked. They're upset that they've purchased homes um, in there and, and construction has been halted. Um, but, you know, this is, this is a land, land claims dispute. And, and we know uh, with, when we even take a look at other parts of Canada, the fisheries disputes on the East Coast and the wet so wet and uh, pipeline controversy on the West Coast that, you know, these these tensions are only expected to rise. And, and I would argue after speaking to, you know, Isidore Day yesterday, the formal former Ontario regional chief, um, you know, he suspects we're going to see more of these land claims disputes. They've been going on for far too long and no level of government has properly addressed it. And I mean, this goes right back to 1996 during um, the the Aboriginal Peoples Commission that was struck by the federal government where they analyzed relations between Indigenous people and, and levels of government and put into stone, you know, points that, that they were going to address, many of which, Bill, haven't been addressed to this day. So we're seeing ourselves in this mess. And, and, and I... Therein lies the frustration, I guess, Morgan, and, and you, you sensed that, obviously, when you were talking to people in the community, that uh, I, I, I'm not 
going to take sides. I don't think anybody is wanting to take sides. But there are no winners here. Everybody's losing. Everybody is, is, is upset about what's going on. This is really pitting community versus community. And it, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, the foundation for this whole conflict here is the fact that uh, it's been 236 years since this happened. Uh, this has been going on for how many years? I mean, countless years, of course. And, and you're, you're right. Invariably, what happens as a result of this, we saw it with Douglas Creek, we've seen it with other uh, conflicts as well, is you're going to get sympathetic demonstrations in other parts of the country. We've seen this with rail blockades, uh, uh, highway blockades on the 401 a few years ago up near Kingston. Uh, and I'm not suggesting it's going to happen, but it is a possibility because it has in the past. Because the sorts of things that you saw in Caledonia, that's continuing in Caledonia, uh, has been going on right across the country, as you say, for God knows how many years right now, and I can understand how they're frustrated. The people in the affected communities are frustrated as well. You are absolutely right, Bill. You know, yesterday, um, to see two different sides um, in a standoff, only separated, you know, by a wall of police officer and some some police officers and some blockades, you know, um, roadblock signs, it it was it was concerning because this it wasn't like we had you know um, a, a bunch of antagonists there. I mean, these were just regular everyday people, a mixture of seniors to children, um, and and it was it was it was sad to see that these that these individuals live so close to one another. Yet this is has done nothing but driven a wedge between the two sides. And at the end of the day, um, both sides have a lot, appear to have a lot of support. Um, the, the, the members of Six Nations, they were joined yesterday by labor unions, including CUPE. Um, they had uh, people from Caledonia. They had people from Hamilton. Um, so this is, this is wide-ranging. And when you really kind of dig a little deeper, Bill, there was a little bit of controversy that occurred yesterday because the day before, um, some some flyers went out uh, to across Caledonia saying that you know Six Nations was going to march up to the bridge and they were they were bringing in professional rioters and looters and they were going to start looting everything and Caledonia needs to take back their town and and you see you see these these posters up around town. I spoke to one police officer who told me he took 50 of them off a car. So not only is this being used, um, not as, only is this rather dividing a community, it's also spreading hate at, uh, I would argue we never need to spread hate, but at a time that, you know, we really should be educating ourselves about the issues that have been plaguing not just Indigenous people, but marginalized people across this country for decades. Well, and it's it's a very germane point that you're raising here is that when you have a conflict like this there are people that have legitimate concerns uh from six nations the haudenosaunee uh, about land claim issues and about process and about the federal government i mean let's face it the the, the two sides here that are at each other right now are the six nations because of this and the crown which is the federal mm -hmm. government or the provincial government either way but it's the government uh, who has not actually sat down at the table and tried to figure this out? You may recall back with the Douglas Creek thing a few years ago, which is not too far away from where you, the the Mackenzie uh, Enterprise is now. Uh, there was some negotiation that went on between the province and the federal government and and the Haudenosaunee, but it broke down. Nothing really got settled. I mean, you know, the only thing that really solved the Douglas Creek thing is the provincial government ended up buying the land, so that the the the, the developer got their money back out of it, or at least most of it, anyway. Uh, that's not really an option, and that's not a long-term solution. So, uh, you know, I keep hearing them say, well, we want money. And I'm, I'm listening to some of the uh, people that you've talked to, some of the leaders uh, of the uh, the protests right now, and they're saying, we don't want money, we want the land. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, a huge, huge chasm between the two sides here. It's never going to get solved until they sit down at the table, and nobody's even talking about that yet. Well, and, and that, that's kind of the disheartening fact. The fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, Bill, if, if you really boil this down, They've been sitting there waiting to be heard for 100 days today. Just put that into perspective, first off, how long 100 days is. And, and furthermore, that they have appealed to Mark Miller, Carolyn Bennett, other um, federal leaders, provincial leaders. And basically, the only, the only form of communication they've received is, is um, 
Doug Ford making uh, some colorful, rather colorful comments last week. So, you know, I, I did reach out to Carolyn Bennett's office yesterday and, and said, hey, you know, are any talks planned? Um, when you talk to the minister's office, they say, well, you know, we've offered to to meet with them, um, but those meetings have, have went unanswered. You speak to the, the representatives and, and they say otherwise. So there really seems to be a breakdown in communication here. And, and I think that at the end of the day, the only people that are going to be able to um, address this dispute effectively and properly is going to be not just the federal government, they're the provincial government as well. And until that happens, they're going to continue to protest and they're going to continue to do whatever, whatever you know, take whatever steps necessary to ensure that their voices are heard. Um, having a heightened police presence in there isn't isn't helping um, measures, and and I understand why they're there after what happened on Thursday, and and why they would bring in reinforcements. They want to ensure that everyone's safe, and keep in mind that every single day, Bill, um, you know, some members of of uh, the Caledonia community um, are are watching, you know, from the barricade. So you can see that this is something that, that um, you know, has really just turned into a back-and-forth yelling match um, that sometimes goes off point. And, and really, it's time for the government, uh, I would suspect, to, to really pull up their socks and step in here because I think, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself, Bill, but I, I think that really... They're the ones who can who can deal with this. Well, there's a couple of things that have to happen too, though, uh, and I understand you know that uh, some of the spokespersons that we've heard from Skylar Williams, among others, are blaming the police for the escalation here. But uh, you know, when you start you know setting fires and closing down a road and putting a school mm-hmm. bus on its side to block things, uh, and I know that even the Six Nations Band Council has has, has condemned that and said violence is not the answer. You got everybody's just got to ramp it down a little bit here. Uh, that has to happen, and, and, and both sides are going to have to understand that. Uh, because what happens in these conflicts, I mean, there are people that have legitimate concerns uh, that need to be addressed, but at the same time, there is another element of, of people that see something like this and figure, hey, we're just going to go in there and stir up some you-know-what. We saw that Absolutely. at the G20 in Toronto years ago. We've seen it with other protests. Uh, we saw it in Hamilton a couple of years ago during uh, some of the, 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 the gay rights parades that were going on and the conflict that was happening there, too. They're professional you know, anarchists that just want to get in on this, and I don't know if they're there. I, be, I know they were in Douglas Creek for a while. Uh, there are people that have you know, nothing to do with all this, and there are those that are sympathetic to that. I get that. I'm not calling everybody who's protesting anarchists. They're not. But they, they, there can be an element of that, and they're the ones that would try to ramp this up just because they like to see conflict. Uh, and, you know, this has got to be solved before this gets out of hand, and there's probably an argument to be made that it already has. It was so great to get your perspective on this, Morgan. Uh, yeah. Stay safe. There's lots more to come on this, to be sure. Uh, we'll stay in touch over the next little while, but thanks so much for the time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Morgan Campbell, of course, digital video journalist with Global News. I mentioned uh, Skylar Williams just a couple of seconds ago. Uh, he, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, and was asked about exactly what was going on and why things seem to be getting out of control right now. Uh, he points his finger at, well, the police. This is uh, just yet another example of what uh, OPP's uh, reaction is and what uh, more broadly is is Canada and certainly Ontario's position on dealing with Haudenosaunee people and their land claims and that violent interaction with, uh, with with our people who are simply trying to make a stand for our land is is absolutely ridiculous and indespicable on their part. We mentioned, uh, it's actually Morgan Campbell mentioned, who was just with us a couple of seconds ago from Global News uh, at Caledonia over the weekend. Uh, there was a demonstration, there was a march on Sunday too, uh, that included members of the Ontario Federation of Labour and CUPE as uh, those that are sympathetic to uh, the protest and what's going on with the Haudenosaunee. Janice Folk-Dawson is the Executive President of the Ontario Federation of Labour, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to explain uh, their perspective on this. Uh, Janice, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Well, thanks very much, Bill. I think it's really important that we uh, get this conversation out in the public. So I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to discuss it. So why were your members there over the weekend? 
Um, well, I mean, I think that quite clearly, uh, the, what has just been happening in, uh, w- with the uh, land back claims, uh, quite clearly, uh, the labor movement needs to be supporting uh, the Indigenous communities. Uh, we clearly understand the misuse of injunctions and the fact of broken contracts. Uh, what the uh, Indigenous people are trying to do and the land defenders are trying to do is to get the government uh, back to the table and to actually have a discussion uh, and to figure out how we uphold uh, the international laws of the treaty. So uh, in solidarity, uh, as we must be uh, with the Indigenous people, the Ontario Federation of Labour uh, put a call out uh, to our union leaders uh, to join uh, the uh, march yesterday uh, to show our support and to start taking in supplies uh, so that these folks uh, can actually uh, make sure uh, that they are uh, getting the discussion, getting the tables, and having the international law upheld. We've uh, heard from some of the comments uh, from some of the, the folks that are, are protesting about what's not going on. Really, I was going to say what's happening. Uh, but the inaction from the federal and provincial governments on this, uh, they're there for the long haul. They're talking about uh, getting ready for winter, uh, which I guess indicates that they're not very optimistic that there is going to be any negotiation. Well, I mean, this is 100 days already. Uh, I mean, well, let, let's be realistic. Like, this goes back to, like, 1784 when it all started, right? They, uh, they've been waiting a long time. Uh, this contract has been broken. Uh, the misuse and, uh, of, of the powers of the government without sitting down uh, and talking to the Indigenous folks uh, is absolutely criminal. Uh, treaties are international laws, and they have to be upheld. And so I think the labor movement, uh, we clearly understand why the Indigenous community uh, is, uh, you know, going in for the long haul. As a labor movement, we understand uh, when we go into negotiations, uh, it's a long haul. You need to be prepared uh, to be there for a long time. And so I'm really proud of the Ontario Federation of Labor uh, that we're going to be able to support uh, the, uh, the land defenders uh, to be there for as long as they need until we get this government back to the table. Janice, are, are, is, what's your level of concern for the greater community itself? I mean, here were the people, uh, I, I, you know Caledonia, it's a lovely place. A lot of people that work in Hamilton, of course, have moved out there uh, because it's it's less expensive, et cetera, for a variety of reasons. We get that. And here they are again for the second time in a number of years now with a conflict right in the middle of their town. The town is blocked off. You've got police versus uh, protesters. I mean, this is this is no way to live, and it's going to have an impact on the economy up there, but it's also having an impact on people's lives. I mean, uh, there are no winners here. That seems to be the, uh, the, the, the bottom line. Well, and I mean, I think that what needs to happen is, I mean, I, uh, I was there on Sunday, um, and at the line, when uh, we came down to uh, the line to talk to the folks, um, you know, it was very peaceful and respectful uh, on, the, uh, on our side. And it was um, quite clearly a, a wonderful uh, Indigenous woman, an 80-year-old, uh, came up to the line and very gently spoke, uh, explaining the history. I think that it's been very clear that the Indigenous people uh, in Caledonia and their allies, we've been wanting to have these conversations for a long time and wanting to have those conversations in the community. But it appears that the, um, there's nobody in the community who is willing to actually sit down and listen to understand instead of listening to reply. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that as Canadians, we should be holding our governments responsible for upholding treaties which are international laws. That's our job as citizens. And so the Indigenous community and labor has been trying to have those conversations with people in the community. And I think that that was demonstrated again yesterday um, when we came down and tried to have some discussion at the line. It was quite clear that those folks that had come uh, to protest against the Indigenous folks were not interested in having discussions. We're not interested in moving it forward, and rather we're making racist sort of comments um, and trying to be intimidating. That's not going to move this issue forward. Intimidation and bullying is colonialism. We need to break that, and we need to enter into true discussions. 
which has to be done at the federal and provincial levels. I, I, I exactly. know we're just about out of time. I, I do know that uh, the, the mayor, that uh, Ken Hewitt, has had discussions on an ongoing basis with our representatives from the Haudenosaunee and Six Nations, and uh, they seem to be on a, a, a pretty even keel. Uh, but then something like this happens, and everything just gets blown out. And uh, you know, the, the, the federal government's got to come to the table, and so does the provincial government. You just, you can't just point fingers and say, you know, you'll get off there and then we're going to start talking because they're going to say, hey, it's been 236 years. Now you're going to start talking. So we'll see what the next steps are going to be. Janice, thanks so much for the time. It was great talking with you today. Well, and thank you so much for raising this issue. Appreciate it, Bill. Okay. Janice Folk-Dawson, of course, from uh, the Ontario Federation of Labour. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton Board of Education has been doing some number crunching about what's going on over the first few months of the school year, and uh, now they have decided to surplus almost 200 teachers. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Manny Figueroa, who is the Director of Education at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Uh, Manny, welcome to the program. Glad you could join us today. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me, Bill. I wish it were under better circumstances. Uh, you've been doing some number crunching here about enrollment and uh, maybe explain exactly what's going on because this is going to have an impact on a number of teachers that you just brought on board and uh, it's going to have an impact on students too. Yeah, so Bill, yeah, thank you for asking the question and just to clarify um, the situation we're in. Um, so all permanent staff that we hire in the spring is based on our, our projections. And we projected about 37,000 elementary students um, and as you know, this summer planning was a unique uh, year in terms of planning and then setting up a remote program in our elementary school. But in terms of clarity, everyone who was permanent um, heading into this fall from June, so when we say 200 people being declared surplus, no permanent staff are losing their positions. What we mean is they might be declared surplus from their current assignment and be reallocated elsewhere. And the question people are asking is, well, why? What, what's happened? Well, as you know, in August, we had to, uh, based on the ministry direction, set up a um, remote elementary program. And we had about 6,600 students at that time. And um, when we started up in September, um, um, we had about 2,000 more students that parents said, you know, we actually uh, don't want to be in the physical in-person class. We want to move over. Well, at that time, we, we honored that, but we had to put some temporary staff. We had to bring staff in from our supply occasional list and put them in those classrooms uh, temporarily because it wasn't 2,000 more students. It was a shift uh, after we already organized our school because we defaulted them. If we hadn't heard from parents, we, we had to default them to in-person so we could prepare for the physical space. But over the fall, in addition to that, uh, like we do every year, we check our projections against, you know, how many students actually showed up. And what we're seeing is about one over 1,700 students that have not shown up, and more than half of them are students in um, full-day kindergarten. Uh, so as a result of that as well, our funding is, is tied to our student enrollment. So we've had to go through a reorganization now where we are, A, reallocating people who were in, in class you know, in the brick and mortar buildings to remote because we've had an increase there. And uh, in addition, people who were in temporary positions um, to fill in when we had that influx remote will go back to our supply list to provide su- uh, daily supply. Um, but what we're appreciative is that the trustees did pass that motion in the fall around spending up to $9 million reserves because without that, um, we would be in a more challenging position but, but our commitment here to the parents, and I've had conversations with parents over the weekend, is that we have to ensure, as we're reallocating staff by November 3rd, that the one-meter distance student-to-student in our elementary classrooms is still our commitment. So what we've realized is what we planned for, for September on paper, our, our, our class averages were actually lower and lower because of the number of students who didn't show up and we were hoping would still show up. So I just want to get some. Let me ask you something, Manny. We're talking about the, the the government funding for this, and I think people have a at least a cursory knowledge of that. That uh, you get funding at, as per the number of students you have in the classroom. Uh, are the st- students that are in virtual classrooms still counted as as part of the student population? In other words, are they still uh, if a factor in the amount of money you get from the government? 
Yeah, absolutely, Bill, they are. You're right. So our main funding source is how many students are attending, whether they intend attend in person or the remote program, we're still funded. But if students don't attend, um, after, after some 15 consecutive days, we have to take them off our roll, and then we do lose the funding for that for those students. Now, but if they're still going to school through the virtual classroom, you mean if they drop out of that too? Is that what you're suggesting? That's correct. So if they attend okay. in okay. person or the remote program, they're still considered a student, and attendance okay. is taken in both, pro in both situations. Okay, and, and how many students have you ever actually lost? In other words, you, you've you've talked about one of the, the concerns here is that a, a lot more people are, are taking the, uh, the the virtual classroom as opposed to the bricks and mortar classroom, uh, and that's going to have an impact here too. But you're, you're suggesting that some of these people, especially in, in the kindergarten age, I guess, have just decided not to, to take part at all. That's correct. So right, we project on thirty-seven thousand students total this September in elementary. Um, now we're looking. In, in uh, our remote, we're, we're starting to push close to 10,000 students who are choosing remote. But in addition, there's about 1,700 students who are not attending brick and mortar schools, nor are they attending the remote program. And about half of them are from our kindergarten. And so there's been a, a larger increase in parents homeschooling their students. Um, so we're going to re-engage with our parents to see how we can try to meet their needs in one of those two options. So I remember the discussion you and I had about uh, the, the spending conflict that you had a few months ago, Manny, uh, that there was going to be a shortfall based on the projections. And this is not unique to Hamilton. I'm sure this is going on with other boards as well. That, but and So you had to dip into reserves to hire teachers that maybe were, as you say, on the, on the temporary list, and they got jobs that they thought were going to at least last until June of this year or next year. So some of those people, if not all of them, have basically been told that you're not needed anymore, or you can go back to this list. You're, you're going to get called every now and then, but you're not going to have a Monday to Friday job necessarily. No, that's correct, and, that, and that's the unfortunate part. So the permanent people, yes, they're, they're going to get a position, but they could be bumping out some of the people in September that we hired on temporarily. We typically tell those staff that we don't know how long these temporary positions will be uh, they're, they're, um, and that they could end at any time. But yes, but some of them might have been counting on hopefully being in those positions uh, until June. But you're right, we're seeing this trend across the province. Um, I know speaking to other directors and advocating, uh, you know, in addition to the ministry around uh, if there's any flexibility to fund us based on our projections in the spring and not on our actual headcount. So it, it will create less disruption if we can count on that for this year because of the pandemic. Um, I'm going to continue to advocate because the downside is this disruption, not only for staff, but for students as we uh, are now going to head into November and they're going to potentially be in a different classroom with a different, with a different educator. And um, so that's the impact to our students as well. I, I'm, I'm hearing stories as well from uh, parents that, that some students actually may have to ch switch schools because of this, because of the shuffling around that's going to be happening. Uh, no, Bill. The students won't shift schools. Um, staff might staff might have to shift schools, or staff might have to leave um, a brick and mortar school and go to the remote program. But no, students will remain in their home school. There's, but they might have to switch, um, you know, teachers that they have in their home school. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, okay, that assuages some concern there because some parents, I guess, were misunderstanding what was going on. Uh, have you communicated this yet to the families, to the parents of, of themselves, about what, what's going to be happening? Yeah, so this communication, we have a board meeting tonight that's coming. There's a further communication coming out. And at the school level, we're supporting our principals to be communicating at the school level. We delayed this transition till November 3rd to give a, a two-week period for this uh, to happen at the school level. So our principals right now are dealing with the, the complexity of looking at enrollment, uh, reorganizing where students may go, and, uh, and then working with staff in terms of which staff will remain and which staff might will be going to a different location or to the remote program. We mentioned, I think, off the top that this is really only impacting elementary schools at this stage with your board. Uh, what's what's the high school situation look like, the, the secondary school situation, Manny? I mean, uh, uh, are, are the numbers that you have projected pretty much in line with what's happening right now, or are you facing a similar challenge? Now, right now, um, we're not. We uh, They seem to be holding based on our projections. 
I think there's an important factor here too uh, in terms of credit accumulation, graduation requirements. Um, our students um, are, are attending whether in, in our adaptive model, but we didn't do revisit that after semester one and semester two, but right now our projection seems to be holding on. And, and, um, and I can see parents in elementary and uh, talking to my colleagues across the province that you know, uh, the Ed Act requires students to be in school age six and above. So if you're not mandatory school age, like in kindergarten, parents um, do not have to send them. We hope they do, because we're, um, but I know some parents um, have chosen to keep their children at home. Um, and secondly, if they are above six, we're seeing more parents who are filling out documentation around the, the homeschooling piece. Uh, but our job is then to try to re-engage and find out how we can adapt either model to try to meet their needs. And um, we are hearing from some parents in the early years that the remote, the remote option uh, you know, is not an option they're interested in because of the amount of hours on screen time. But we're going to try to re-engage and see what kind of hybrid model we could maybe provide in a remote that, that might reduce the amount of screen time. Because the ministry does provide an exemption piece around the, uh, the, the policy program around um, synchronous learning. So, we're going to reach out and try to re-engage our, our, our community and our parents as much as possible to try to have students come back. As we know, uh, we know we respect the parent choice, but we want to really see how we can help them. A couple of things here. The impact this is going to have on your budget and your projections, obviously, because uh, you're going to be having conversations with the provincial government, with the ministry pretty soon. I know that every other board is concerned about the shortfall. How does this impact that? Yeah, it's, you know, we passed a balanced budget last year, as you know, um, but then our trustees um, did say we could spend up to $9 million of our reserves. So right now, uh, what this means is that um, when you're down 1,700 students, it's being discussed tonight, it went to one of our trustee committees, it was around $15 million short in revenue. Now, then you start minusing some of the expenses that come off, um, but right now, we are in a position of, of submitting um, in the near future, almost a, a $90 million deficit um, budget, um, but over $6 million of that will be covered by the reserve funds, um, but we're around right now looking at it today, about a $2.8 million um, shortfall still, and what it means for boards, if they do pass a deficit budget, they can pass a 2% deficit budget of their operating costs. It means that you have to develop a plan to pay yourself back over a certain period of time. So I understand the ministry challenging boards to use their reserves or to pass a deficit budget during COVID to try to mitigate some of these uh, issues. But uh, once the reserves are gone, uh, that won't be a solution for next school year um, because we've depleted those reserves and we have to pay back any, any of the deficit as well. Yeah, therein lies the problem. I mean, it's one thing for, you know, to, from a mathematical standpoint to say, yeah, where's, where's your, your payback method? But if you're going to be in the hole again next year, and we don't know what's going to happen yet because of COVID and how parents are going to respond to this, uh, you, if you're still treading water, it's going to be awfully hard to start to, to start bailing in a situation like this. I mean, this is going to cause problems for boards of education right across the province here. And, you know, the, I know that you had an ask a little while ago, but, I mean, this is going to get uh, to the point where, you you know, it's going to have an impact on, on teachers it's having an impact on students. I feel badly for the teachers that thought they had a paycheck until June, and that's going to have an impact on that. So this is a this is a, a very troubling situation that you're facing. Yeah, and one of, so one of the things we can't compromise right now, and I've talked to parents over the weekend, is the safety piece. Uh, it's hard to be long-term strategic during a crisis, but, the sh but what we said we have to be consistent with is the safety as we're looking at organizing classes. And the other piece I've spoken to parents about and staff is that in January we have said that we would look at another transition point. But in our report that's going to trustees tonight, we're, I'm going to say that we need different parameters around this transition because if we ask parents, if they, again, if they'd like to choose and change from remote to brick and mortar or vice versa, uh, our parameters have to be different. In other words, if we have space, where can we uh, accommodate? And if we don't have space, um, I'm really concerned or not interested, um, nor should we be reorganizing again because the impact of moving students again or staff moving locations uh, really impacts student learning, achievement, and well-being. So um, 
the, the ask for us will be to see if we still have reserves that if we have to add people then to, to accommodate that second transition. And I know our trustees are going to advocate to the ministry again around providing some support around that. So if we honor parent choice and transition, we don't want to reorganize uh, again, but maybe add if we have to add a few more positions to accommodate that transitional period. Manny, how fluid is the situation right now? You mentioned going back and forth between bricks and mortar and, and uh, the homeschooling, the, the, the virtual things. Uh, with the concern, and I'm sure you've heard this from parents as well, about the second wave and the impact that it could have, not just in the education system but everywhere else, uh, my guess is you're probably going to get more parents that may want to look into the virtual thing. Some are just totally against it. They don't think it's the right thing for their children. But these numbers that you've just talked about now could change again, couldn't they? Yeah, they could. So, um, so I'll, I'll go back to the data. So we had about 6,600 who chose in August, but then when September started, there was more than 2,000 who 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 wanted remote. So we were we were around eight, um, started pushing around 8,800 uh, students that were in remote when we when we started in September. Right now, we just asked the question: How many parents would like to switch? Um, and that data came in a couple weeks ago that were, that's also part of this reorganization. We had 800 um, parents who, who want their students to move from brick and mortar in person to remote. And we have 500 who are currently in the remote program who want to have their children return to brick and mortar in person. So at the end, that's 300 more students um, in our remote. And that requires us to repurpose approximately around 14 full-time positions from brick and mortar to remote. So when you talk about being uh, fluid, there's an impact to, um, every time we try to honor a transitional um, choice from parents. It requires shifting. And my concern is January. Um, how do we do that without reallocating or changing assignments and moving kids? And that's where we're going to ask our trustees to advocate where we can if we haven't depleted the $9 million reserve, to keep some of it there so we can add more positions if, if it's not a net balance or ask the ministry to continue to support us so we don't disrupt classrooms in January. Uh, as you mentioned, there'll be a board meeting tonight, and I'm sure a lot of this is going to get fleshed out there. Uh, Manny, as always, thanks so much for uh, taking some time to add some clarity to this. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Bill, for your time as well. Take care. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Manny Figueroa, the Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.